Um, well, first of all, apologies that it isn't yet Advent. So Sophie's saying that I'm trying to persuade us not to get to Christmas too fast, and I'm starting Advent before Advent. That's not good, is it? But um, uh, I was originally asked to come and do this next weekend, but I will be away with 350 ordinance at a residential next weekend. can sort of check which I would prefer to be doing, but um, one is my job, so there we go. Pray for us next weekend as we uh, set it off for Advent with all those ordinance. Um, uh, and uh, the plan um, for, the, for the afternoon is that um, I will talk a lot, but it'll be a bit like a three hours is what I'm hoping. So we'll have um, slots looking at particular Advent themes uh, and then some pauses. I've given you some handouts, mostly because my students feel very insecure if they don't have a handout. So um, please feel free completely to ignore the handout if it's not useful, just to give you a couple of themes to think about um, during those pauses. Um, in the pauses, feel free to talk quietly to the person sitting next to you if they would like to talk quietly to you. Um, or, or take the time in, in silence as you, uh, as you prefer. Um, I've got, a, like most of London, I've got a slight cold, so apologies if I get a bit um, scratchy at various points. We'll try and um, take a break. I'm, I've got no idea how you drink a glass of water with this thing in front of your mouth. But, so if I electrocute us all, apologies. Um, so there are various themes that I'm going to be picking up as we start preparing uh, for Advent. Um, and the main point of this is so that you can look at these lovely pictures, um, most of which will be familiar to you, some of them won't. I had great fun doing the research for this book when I was uh, publishing it last year. It's amazing what you can find on the internet. Uh, some of them I had uh, in my mind from the beginning, but some of them were real discoveries as I explored the themes that I wanted to write about. Um, and uh, the theme of light is one of the, the big themes uh, of Advent. Um, Advent has these twin themes of looking back to the nativity of Jesus, which, for which we're preparing ourselves again, but also looking forward um, to the birth, uh, or looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Uh, and uh, that second coming um, is a source of joy, but also traditionally some apprehension because uh, the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago did slightly suggest uh, that we're not very bright um, and that an awful lot of people missed that this was the turning point of the world. Uh, and therefore, as we look forward um, to the, imp the ongoing impact of that birth of Jesus uh, and to the fulfillment of all things in the second coming of Jesus, there is this element always uh, of apprehension as well. Um, and the, the suggestion that a lot of us are and continue to be in the dark, literally and metaphorically. Um, and that might make it even more important to spend Advent in preparation, uh, trying to hone our skills for seeing God at work. Um, because God, as we see in the Nativity, God works very mysteriously in, in ways that don't seem to us obvious, not the way we would behave if we were God. Um, and so uh, as we uh, spend time in Advent looking forward uh, to celebrating the birth of Jesus again, looking forward to the world's fulfillment in Christ at the end, we're trying to um, orientate ourselves again to God's action, become more aware of the way in which God works. And this theme of light, light and darkness, is one of the big themes of St. John's Gospel. So you remember in John uh, chapter 1, where John starts with this huge picture of in the beginning. 
um, and he describes um, the, the coming of Jesus as the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness cannot and did not overcome it. Um, and here we see Blake describing, painting, um, the creation of light, light pouring out of um, the, the dwelling place of God. Um, I, I, this isn't really going to be an art history lecture. Uh, it is going to be a, a lecture on the themes of Advent. Um, Blake, I, I always feel a bit bad using Blake to illustrate my themes because Blake himself had some really interesting and not wholly orthodox ideas uh, about Christianity. Um, but I'm, as I say, I'm not going to give you a lecture about Blake. You do go and look him up if you'd like to find out a little bit more about him. Um, he spent a lot of his life in London and uh, there are memorials to him in Westminster Abbey and in St. James's Piccadilly. Um, so uh, a, a local you might say. Um, and uh, Blake, as I say, was ambivalent, particularly about the Christian God. Uh, and you can see some of this ambivalence in this figure as, as God measures the world. Um, the creation account um, is talking about how, how God, uh, that right at the beginning, separates um, light and dark. And so presumably what we're seeing as God separates light and dark is the creation of time, uh, so that there's day and night, so there's differentiation. Um, and so, uh, like the beginning of John's Gospel, it's helping us to see um, that uh, from the beginning, God is creating in order to make God's self available to us. We're seeing, when we call Jesus Emmanuel, we're not saying that this is something that uh, a characteristic of God's that only comes into existence at the time of the birth of Jesus. We're saying this is an eternal aspect of the God who is going to be for us and with us, the character of God. Um, the Christian account of creation suggests that we, God's created beings, are not necessary to God. God has all that God needs in God's self. So we are created for our sakes, not for God's. Um, we are, are to, to share in God's joy and God's self-giving. Uh, and so as God begins to make creatures who live in time, this is the first moment that Blake is helping us to see here, the separation of light and darkness. Um, can you see uh, that God has God's own dynamism there? Can you see the way that the hair is streaming? Um, God is electric, God is alive. Um, obviously, Blake didn't know about the Big Bang, but don't you think that looks, that's quite a good depiction of a Big Bang, that first moment of creation where there's an energy pouring out from God. Energy, movement, life. Um, notice too, um, the figure is, what, what age is that figure? Who knows? Um, white haired, white beard, but a very muscular, strong, youthful body. So uh, God who is eternal and forever new, we're seeing at work here. Um, uh, notice that the, the, the fiery radiant sphere, which seems to be God's own home, that sort of pulsing, active, um, dynamic heat uh, in which, uh, from which God is leaning out uh, to push the darkness away. Um, and you can see that the light is sort of streaming down his arm. That light is God's natural habitat, that light and energy. Uh, and it's, it's streaming down into what God is creating uh, through that arm. Um, the, the figure is measuring. Can you see this is a pair of compasses, those of us who were at school long enough ago? 
had to draw those wretched circles that never stayed still, did they? They always changed dimension halfway through. Uh, unlike God's pair of compasses, I'm happy to say. Um, and uh, therefore, is presumably giving shape and form to the world, that sense that everything is measured out. It's not haphazard. It's not accidental. This is God's um, purposive action that we're seeing here. Um, and uh, it's hard to tell from Blake's own depiction whether that's a, um, a good thing, that the, the world is measured by God, or whether when we're talking about measuring, we're also talking about the possibility of falling short. Is God's measurement also, has it got an element uh, of judgment in it? Um, so that extraordinary sense of the creation of light, which is the beginning, the separation of time and eternity, the beginning of the possibility of creatures like us who are not eternal but live in time, and God makes space and shape for us. And then this very famous one. Um, if Blake um, is depicting, uh, as I've suggested, God's powerful, overwhelming activity, um, which is one aspect of the character of God as we encounter God, Holman Hunt uh, is describing God's humility and patience, that other aspect of God that comes through these Advent themes uh, that we'll be looking at. So this is Holman Hunt depicting that um, uh, the verse in Revelation 3.20. Listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. So again, that John 1 theme of light and darkness, not all were able to recognize the presence of God with them. Uh, God standing patiently waiting to be recognized. Um, now, my, my very helpful um, PowerPoint uh, um, maker offers me design tips and so it's cut out little bits of the picture to make it look prettier for you um, but can you see that the door itself is really solid there's no light coming through the door at all the door is absolutely impervious to that light um, and it looks as though it hasn't been open for ages can you see these sort of dead weeds all up the front of the door. That's a door that nobody's opened for a very long time. They may even have forgotten that it does open. Um, and where it's the light in that picture coming from, um, some of it is coming clearly from the lantern that Jesus is holding, um, but some of it is coming from Jesus, from that sphere around Jesus' head. And behind Jesus is a, a dark, dark garden. Um, the garden of the fall, the garden in which everything started to go wrong, the garden of Gethsemane, um, our garden, the garden that we've made of our life, which is dark and weedy and uh, full of things that we don't want to explore anymore, um, the past that we feel we don't have any control over, perhaps, um, and the Christ who is emerging from this garden is the crucified and risen one. I don't know if you can quite see in this picture, but it's perfectly clear in the hand that's knocking. You can see uh, the marks of the nails still and the crown of thorns around Jesus' head. Um, uh, and uh, Homer Hunt, in all his, his pictures, he, he knows the Bible quite well. He does a lot of ironic double references in these pictures. Uh, and we can pick them up or not entirely as we uh, see fit. But in uh, John 10, Jesus refers to himself as a door, as the gate 
to the sheepfold. Um, and the gate is, uh, is what keeps the sheep safe. Um, and it keeps them safe partly by keeping some people out, by keep, keeping predators and wolves out. Um, and so this door, which is us, what is this door doing? Um, is, it, uh, is it a door that we have kept closed so because we think it'll make us safe? We're keeping that door closed because who knows what will come in if we open it? Does it represent our fears? Are we afraid to let this knocking figure in? Um, or are we afraid of what this knocking figure will see if we open the door? What kind of fear is being represented here? Um, and so one of the themes that this light and dark um, theme of Advent picks up for us all during Advent is this great patience of God. Um, from the foundation of the world, God has been planning uh, to be with us. God has been opening the door between us and God. God has been opening this relationship to us uh, and leaving us the option to keep it closed. So one of the sounds I'd love us to hear through Advent is that quiet, persistent knocking on the parts of our lives and our world's life uh, where God is waiting for the door to be opened. So um, for a couple of minutes, have a little think about some of those themes if you would like to, or some other themes entirely if you would prefer. If you're happy to do so, could you join me in saying this prayer, but don't feel you have to. Lord, giver of life, creator of light, give us courage to turn to you with hope and trust. As we await the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ, may the renewing Spirit teach us to trust your purposes of love and to allow the new birth which will set us free. Amen. So that slightly uncomfortable theme of um, light and dark, and while we're on uncomfortable themes, we're going to go on to some more. Um, some of the traditional themes of Advent, death, judgment, heaven and hell, the four last things. Um, and these are, again, looking forward to the second coming of Christ um, because they're the absolute things that come into um, focus as uh, Jesus is born. It brings us up against the reality of the world as we have made it, um, as opposed to the way that God envisages the world for us. Um, and one of the themes then of Advent is this sense of urgency. Um, we don't actually have all the time that we think we have before we need to make important decisions about the shape of our lives. Those decisions about whether or not we will open all of the doors to our lives for Christ. Um, not all of the decisions are ultimately in our hands, as we sometimes like to imagine that they are. Um, this is a, a, a little vignette of uh, one of Dürer's woodcuts. For, uh, he illustrated a lot of the book of Revelation with woodcuts. And this is uh, the famous uh, one, one of the four horsemen of the, of the apocalypse. Revelation 6 says that a conqueror comes riding a white horse to be followed by a red horse carrying war on its back, then a black horse whose rider measures out famine on the earth, and then finally comes this pale horse ridden by death. 
Um, and the word pale um, is, is a, it's a really difficult word to translate. It basically means indeterminate kind of colour. Um, the white and the red and the black are very clear colours, but the, the horse that death rides um, is greenish or ashen or colourless. Basically, I think what, what we're meant to be seeing is something that's utterly lifeless. This horse is as dead as the death that rides on it. So this figure that we're seeing here is clearly death. You can see all death's ribs. You can see that the, the horse, too, is a skeleton horse. Um, can you see his trident pointing backwards? He's not even bothering to look behind him. Behind him are all past ages of dead people. Uh, death follows wherever death points his trident. He's crunching corpses and bones under his feet. Um, again, you can see a kind of... Um, parody of the dynamism of, of Blake's Ancient of Days, the, the, the fleeing hair, the sense of a kind of deathly life, but doesn't look as though death's enjoying himself much. That's a, a joyless, set face there. Um, he's not even enjoying his power. Uh, it's just the sphere that he inhabits. He's not crowing over his subjects, his conquered subjects. He's not even looking at them. There's just this sense that wherever he goes, death seeps out from him. Um, and these, um, uh, the, the kind of paintings and preaching that we have from the medieval period, talking about death, uh, judgment, heaven and hell, um, we find a little bit distasteful now. We don't really want to try and frighten people into believing in God. Um, but I suggest that we can actually read this picture very differently in our setting, because um, death, judgment, heaven and hell are the reality that a lot of people in our world have faced this year. Um, war, famine, devastation, death, the feeling of helplessness in the face of evil. Um, it's been on our television screens, it seems to me, throughout most of this year. Uh, and so as we come into Advent, uh, one of the themes of Advent is to suggest that this is not the only truth at work in the world. The child that we are uh, longing for is breaking in with a new kind of order. This terrifying horseman is not the final figure that he believes himself to be. Um, instead, a powerless child is about to disempower these four horsemen, another kind of work at world, uh, a world at work um, in our in our consciousness. And so this is another picture um, of death, judgment, heaven and hell, a very different one, a different uh, picture of God's kind of judgment, not the terrible judgment of death, um, but the judgment of the Father's heart. It must be one of the most famous pictures, Rembrandt's picture of the prodigal son. Um, and uh, it's so famous that you hardly need me to tell you what to look at here. Uh, notice the, 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 the son is clearly in a bad way. He's, um, he's not only looking a bit disheveled, but he's dishonoured himself in all kinds of ways. His, uh, his shaven head and lack of beard suggests that he's really been living a very disreputable life. He's, he's pretty well barefoot. He's worn through his shoes. His clothes are sort of dun-coloured. Again, if you think about uh, the pale horse, these are the pale clothes. The, the, the lifeless kind of clothes that the sun is reduced to. Grave clothes, almost. Um, and uh, the parable, as you remember, is told um, to show us the kind of judgment that we exercise 
Uh, and so we assume the kind of judgment that God's going to exercise. We're told that Jesus tells this parable because the religious leaders around at the time were grumbling that Jesus was getting friendly with the wrong kind of people. Uh, and that made them question Jesus' judgment and question Jesus' understanding of God's judgment. Um, the, so you can see the older brother here on the edge of the picture, um, looking on disapprovingly. Um, although, what harm is it doing him that his father loves his brother? Doesn't, it, it's almost as though the older brother thinks God has a limited amount of love. And if he shares it, uh, then the, the older brother won't get enough. But obviously the father is at the heart of this picture. That's again where all the light comes. Rembrandt is absolutely brilliant with light. Always look what he does with, with his light because it's telling you where he wants us to really look. Um, and again, the parable tells us that the father has been looking out for the return of the prodigal for all the time the prodigal's been away. The father has been there waiting for the prodigal to come home. So there's no sense at all in this parable um, that the father condemns the prodigal son. Um, we're told that when the prodigal son gets home, the father doesn't even wait for the prodigal to get out his rehearsed apology. He embraces him before the words get out of his mouth at all. Um, the father's love for his son is not dependent on what the son does or doesn't do. And that applies to either of those sons. He knows them well and he loves them. So the love of the father is dependent only on the character of the father. The father is loving and faithful and will always act lovingly and faithfully. Um, if that's a picture of judgment, that's a much more heartening picture, isn't it? Um, and uh, if that's a moment in time, one of the things that Advent says is that's a moment where we see into the heart of God here at the birth of Jesus, here in the, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We see into the heart of God. Uh, and the heart of God doesn't come into existence at this moment in time. It is who God actually is always in relation to us. Um, so here on the left, you've got a little bit of Masaccio's uh, painting of uh, Adam and Eve being expelled from the Garden of Eden. Um, and he helps us to see uh, that terrible sense of the reality that a lot of us live in, a lot of our world seems to live in. Um, the reality of the world in which uh, what we've done, we can't undo. In which consequences seem to roll out inexorably from mistaken uh, happenstances, from all kinds of things that if only we could go back and undo, we would. So can you see how Adam and Eve are longing to go back. Adam is devastated. He, do, he can't look forward because he can't believe there's anything to look forward to. See how he's covering his eyes? Um, he doesn't know where to look at all. He can't turn back time. Um, Eve is covering her nakedness. One of the outcomes um, of the Genesis depiction of the fall is that Eve and Adam notice they're different in ways that become worrying, whereas before they had been uh, complementary, they had simply assumed they were there for each other. Uh, so Eve covering her nakedness is a source of shame to her, um, a sign of what she has lost, um, that innocent relationship with Adam and with God. So it's interesting, isn't it, that Matthew and Luke both start their Gospels with genealogies. 
telling us the birth, uh, the, the heritage of Jesus. Um, Matthew um, and, and Luke are suggesting that what we're seeing in the birth of Jesus is something about reclaiming the past as well as changing the future and changing the present so that the future changes. So Matthew traces Jesus' line back to Abraham, as you remember. Um, so after this creation and fall story that Masaccio is depicting there, uh, God calls Abraham as a sort of fresh start in God's project of being with and for God's people. God calls Abraham and tells Abraham that Abraham and Abraham's children will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, that original creation blessing that Genesis talks about. And so when Matthew says Jesus' line goes back to Abraham, what he's saying is that Jesus is the continuing faithfulness of God that is coming to its fulfillment now in Jesus Christ. The God who created, who called Abraham, has now come to reclaim his people. And Luke's genealogy is even bolder. Do you remember this? It goes all the way back uh, to Adam. Um, connecting Jesus to the original purposes of creation, to share God's abundant life and joy in creation with, with humanity. Um, both of them then suggesting that the ways in which we've tried to make God's action smaller, we, the, the people who first read Matthew and Luke would have assumed that God only acted through the Jewish people. We're tempted now to think God only acts through Christians. And Matthew and Luke then are saying something quite drastic here. They're saying God is the source of God's faithfulness and love. And not just narrow, not judgmental, not um, uh, only if we tick the right boxes, but the, the outpouring creative love of God for the whole of creation. And it, they're also saying uh, that this story is not the only kind of thing at work in the world. Nothing can prevent God from staying faithful to creation and blessing it. Um, this little icon of the harrowing of hell was one of, the, um, one of the ones that I came across by accident when doing the research for this book, and it's become one of my favorite. It um, comes from, uh, from Spain in the 14th century. Um, and again, it's making this point that the past doesn't have to dictate the future, because God is the future of every past. Can you see the crucified Jesus sort of stepping over the bones again? Um, the bones that, that were there in that, the, the pale horse riding over them. Stepping over the snake, um, as though the snake doesn't have to be taken any notice of. He's got no protection, Jesus. He's not wearing chain mail or boots or anything. He's, his bare, wounded feet are just walking across there. Uh, he hasn't got a weapon. He's just carrying his, uh, his staff, um, and, and yet, that is enough to open the great monster's mouth. Can you see the monster? There's two eyes and the mouth in the background there. Um, and uh, Because he is the rightful king here, even if he looks powerless. Um, and then, can you see stepping out here? Can you see Adam stepping out and giving Jesus his hand? Can you see uh, there's a, the beginning of a little smile on Adam's face? Adam is beginning to believe that change is possible. Um, Eve doesn't yet look quite so sure, does she? You can see she's still got her apple. Um, she's pretty convinced she's done something that even, even God can't forgive, perhaps. She's going to have to learn to give um, Jesus that apple and accept 
uh, that this wounded king actually can undo even what she has done. Um, seeing, so what we're seeing there in that little icon is history being rewritten. Not undoing the past, because Jesus is still wounded. History has really happened. It isn't uh, unreal. Um, but uh, what Jesus is doing is changing the meaning of the past. Because God alone tells us the truth. Uh, and God is to be trusted. You don't know the meaning of history till you come to the end. And this icon is suggesting the end of history is the reality of God. God tells us our truth. And it may be surprisingly different from what we think it will be. So those themes of death, judgment, heaven and hell, serious themes, worrying themes, um, but themes held in the providence of God. So again, just a couple of minutes to have a little think about those. Again, if you're uh, willing, will you join me in saying this prayer? Lord, lift our eyes to your mercy seat, where Jesus Christ, the Son, sits and judges us worthy to be his sisters and brothers. Give us courage to reach out in the power of the Holy Spirit and take the outstretched hand of the Son, leading us home. Amen. So I've been suggesting that that theme of death, judgment, heaven and hell, uh, when we take it into the Advent themes, is actually uh, a source of comfort for us because it's about God's faithfulness. It's suggesting there is another great force at world in the work that isn't always visible to us. Uh, and so the next theme sort of picks that up. It's about uh, if... Uh, what we're seeing in the birth of Jesus and uh, through the birth of Jesus then looking towards the end of the world, if what we're seeing is the faithfulness of God, then what we're also seeing is that this faithfulness has been preparing God's action with us all through time. Um, this is a little bit of a Coptic icon of uh, the three patriarchs. So on, on the edge there cut out is, is Jacob because we're going to concentrate on Abraham and Isaac. Um, and in our Advent wreaths, you know, the, for the candles, uh, we normally have a candle uh, for the patriarchs uh, as part of the way in which God prepares the world to come to understand and see the reality of God in Jesus Christ. Um, and can you see here at the bottom in this nice little sort of Easter egg shape, um, the three angelic visitors, the ones who came to visit Abraham and Sarah to announce uh, that they would be having a child. It's one of my favourite stories. I like them, Sarah sitting somewhere in a tent laughing at that. Um, I think it's sometimes God's plans do sound laughable. because You can't see how they're possibly going to work out in the reality that we're actually encountering at the time. Uh, and these three figures become, uh, in Christian iconography, a, a, um, a foretelling of, the, of the, our understanding of God as Trinity. So some of you will be familiar with Rublev's, Rublev's great icon of the Trinity. This is based on the three visitors uh, to Abraham. Um, and uh, you will remember that uh, basically God has told Abraham that Abraham's family are going to become the source of blessing for the whole world. But there's a hitch because Abraham doesn't have a family. So the whole faithfulness of God um, is on trial here. How can God's promises come true if Abraham and Sarah don't actually have a child? 
um, how will all the families of the earth be blessed? So this is a point of real um, existential crisis for Abraham. He's left his, um, the, all of the familiar places in order to follow God's call. Uh, and now he's beginning to wonder if perhaps he's deceived himself, completely misunderstood the purposes of God, which is why this is such a hugely um, significant moment when the three visitors come to announce that Isaac will be born. And of course he is born the one who confirms the faithfulness of God. Um, but notice what this icon is actually depicting, because can you see that Abraham's got a really scary knife that he's sort of casually got over his shoulder, um, and Isaac is rather nervously clutching that little ram. Because um, you will remember that in Genesis 22, we have this extraordinary, puzzling um, story of the binding of Isaac. Everything that God has promised Abraham depends on Isaac, um, as does the whole of what Abraham has come to understand about God's nature and God's purpose, depends on this son. Uh, and yet God appears to ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Um, and Abraham sets out to do it. Um, and it's, it's a really terrifying story. It becomes clear that Abraham really will do it. He really will sacrifice his own son until at the last moment an angel intervenes to say he doesn't have to and that God has provided that ram. I can imagine if I was Isaac, I'd want to keep a ram with me always just in case. Whew. Never know quite what your dad's going to get up to. Um, uh, and so uh, God provides the sacrifice necessary so that God continues to keep the promise uh, of God's presence with us, God's blessing through Abraham to the whole world. Uh, and again, this is um, often seen as a type of a prefiguring of the story of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is um, the one provided by God so that we do not have to uh, sacrifice any further. Um, although it's important always to remember when telling that story that Jesus is not just provided by God, but is also God. So it's not that God does something to Jesus, um, but that this is all part of the action of God. God the Son will be the perfect sacrifice, who, according to Hebrews, makes all other sacrifices unnecessary. Um, his death seems like the end of all God's faithfulness. It seems like that sacrificing Isaac moment. We've got God completely wrong. If Jesus is meant to be the full uh, presence and representation of God for us, and Jesus dies, then we must have misunderstood God. Um, but what actually happens, of course, is that that sacrifice of Jesus on the cross will prove to be the greatest demonstration that God is always to be trusted, whatever it may look like. That moment of deepest betrayal becomes the way that God gets closer to us than ever. So that there's no part of life or even death that is empty of God because God has made a way to be close to us. And that way, of course, is uh, Jesus. And again, this is part of the preparation. These two pictures are helping us to see um, the prefiguring of the cross. This is uh, Leonardo famous cartoon um, of the Holy Family. I, I love this. I love the sort of intimacy of it. Um, can you see Mary sitting on her mother's lap? Um, irreverent people call uh, St. Anne, Holy Annie, God's granny, which I've always rather liked. Um, uh, so Jesus sitting on his mother's lap, his mother sitting on her mother's lap. 
um, the lovely sort of lines that flow, that's one uni united family, see those heads, the two women's heads turned toward, towards each other. John the Baptist slightly on the edge of that. Um, his role is to point and not to be part of it. So John is pointing to the real action. And can you see that Anne and Jesus are both, both pointing upwards? They're saying that all the lines flow um, from God. Leonardo does this quite often um, with hands. Watch where his hands are pointing. Um, so you're seeing here the strength of the family bond, but also there's something eternal about that. It looks as though it's made of stone, doesn't it? It looks really durable, lasting, because of the, the colours of it. We're seeing something um, that, that is a, a human family in our time, and yet is of eternal significance, has that extraordinary strength and resonance. Um, and the Millet picture next to it, uh, again, like Holman Hunt, Millet is brilliant at uh, helping us see lots and lots of resonances. It's showing um, Jesus in Joseph's carpenter's shop. Um, it, it created an immense furore when it came, first came out um, because it made Jesus' childhood look quite ordinary. Um, people strongly objected to the fact that Mary looked a bit, um, uh, well, not glorious and calm. She looks like an ordinary, anxious mother. There she is comforting Jesus. Jesus has just cut himself on a nail. You don't need me to unpack that for you, do you? Okay, well done. Um, uh, they also very much objected to the fact that Jesus is shown as a red-headed child. Much too ordinary. Um, uh, and can you see, this is John the Baptist carrying a little bowl of water, presumably to wash the cut hand, but it's also signifying that John will baptise Jesus. Um, can you see the sheep peeping in at the back there? I think that's probably us. Um, waiting for our shepherd. Um, and it looks as though uh, what they're making as a door, so again, the reference to Jesus as the door to the sheepfold. Um, uh, and what is being made then is a door that's, that will be opened for us through uh, the pain that Jesus will suffer uh, as an adult. Um, the, the, all, pretty, always look out for references to wood in any Christian pictures because wood, uh, the wood of, the, of Eden to the wood of the cross, um, are constant allusions in Christian pictures. Um, so this, this method of referring backwards and forwards, seeing echoes and resonances in the, in the history that the Bible tells us, is often called typology. Um, and it's one of the very strong themes in the Bible, of the way in which God's action echoes through time. Um, it, starts, it seems to start in one place, and then you suddenly hear a, a similar echo being picked up in a different period of history. So um, what seem like isolated incidents resonate uh, when something similar happens that makes you think, oh, I see, God was like that before. God's done something similar before. Um, uh, and this sense of the poetic, allegorical dance of God through time, uh, that uh, God doesn't experience time in one direction only. God is able to weave time, weave in and out of time, um, bringing things uh, that seemed senseless, senseless in one period into a whole new meaning and beauty in a different time and period. 
It's one of the things I love about uh, teaching in a theological college is um, you get to hear people telling you their story of how they began to realize that God had called them to this particular kind of ministry. And it's very often this kind of typological story. They hear echoes. They look back over their lives and see God's hand at work in different kinds of ways, things that didn't make sense at the time actually come together to make sense uh, as they discover what it is that God's calling them to. Um, and it's very important to notice that that doesn't mean that God is manipulating time. God isn't making this happen um, in a Machiavellian kind of way that we are not aware of, um, but that God is able to weave in and out of time and weave things together into a beautiful new kind of tapestry. So, again, just a couple of minutes to think uh, about that. Shall we say this prayer together? Lord, in all the dark and testing circumstances of life, may we trust in Jesus Christ that in the power of his resurrection from the dead, we may find the new life of the Spirit leading us into hope and truth. Amen.